Well, imagine uh, you are uh, a part of a search hiring team. And uh, for some of you, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. I, it's okay. I think you'll be wonderfully qualified for this. And so uh, you're together there, the team, the committee, whatever we call it. And you're going to receive the candidates and their plans. And so uh, you receive this candidate and here is his plan. He proposes he's not going to go to the people, but he will make them come to him. He proposes that instead of meeting where you're currently meeting, you go to a remote location, the wilderness, and have people come to him. There'll be no building, no seating. People can just stand. You can tell by his attire that he's not dressed particularly fashionably, and when he talks about it, it seems like he wants to dress unattractively, almost weird on purpose. When you ask him what he'll be communicating out there in the wilderness while everyone's standing, he says he'll generally be offensive, seek to insult his listeners, use harsh and condemning words, and then he specifically mentions high-ranking original religious officials, and he will call them snakes and hypocrites, point out their lack of integrity, show their lies and their double standards. When he sees you may not think this is the best idea, he assures you he will not hold back. He will expose their sin and call them sinners. And when you ask him where does he think all of this is going, he'll say, well, in the end, I will encourage my followers to follow a worthy leader, a more worthy leader. In fact, I will admit that I am unworthy in comparison to that leader. So how does the discussion go around the table? I have a sense in our polite Canadian way, we would say something like, well, we like his courage, but he's probably not our guy. You know, it's probably just not going to work out for us. Maybe we should look at some other candidates. Well, as, as you would think about what you might say there around that table at that committee meeting, let me just introduce myself. I'm Jeff Bennett, the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor and Welcome to all of you this morning in person and also Harbor Online, just welcome to you, whether you're watching now or at, at a later time. I think the general consensus is he's not getting the job. We're going to pass. But yet, as some of you may know, the person I am describing is a biblical character, a real person, and his name is John the Baptist. And if you're familiar with John the Baptist's ministry, I think I've described it fairly well. And the interesting thing about him is that crowds, large crowds of people went out to the wilderness to hear exactly what he had to say. Even by today's standards, John the Baptist was incredibly popular. Crowds went out to hear him preach. And as his name suggests, John the Baptist, people went out and were baptized by him. And so as you think about that for a moment, you, you think John was all of those things that I've just said, and you sort of wonder, okay, what was he saying that was actually so appealing to people? What was his content that drew people out? Because normally we think this would not draw a crowd. And so the question we could ask this morning is, why was John the Baptist's message so appealing? What drew people to John? Now, as you'll see on the screen, the theme today is not why John the Baptist. The title of today's message is why Jesus. So not why John the Baptist, why Jesus, but yet in many ways, it's hard to separate those two. 
John's message was about Jesus. John prepared the way for Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus. And so as we answer the question, why John the Baptist, we also, in the same way, are answering the question, why Jesus? They had the same message. So in some ways, our question could be this. Why was John's message of Jesus that prepared the way for Jesus so appealing? And here's my hope and prayer this morning, that as we look in and see what John said, what he spoke, that drew large crowds of people that we might find in there the appeal of it, the attractiveness of it, even though at first glance, it may not seem that way. That's my hope and prayer today, that I can try to explain well why this message appealed to the people of John's day. And then for each of us in our own hearts, we sort of determine where we stand, how we would respond to John's message today. And so here's the secret of making this work. You just have to let John be himself. You just got to let him be himself. He's a little bit rude by today's standard. We would say that. He's not very sensitive, but you're going to like his courage. And he also ultimately brings good news. And my hope and prayer is this morning that we would see that good news. So we're in Luke chapter 3. Hope you've got your Bibles. You can turn them on, open them up. Uh, if this is your first Sunday at Harbor, this is part of a broader journey we're doing as a church, just looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Luke. And that's what we're looking in on. And today, we saved this today to come to John the Baptist today for Why Jesus Sunday. But let me just give a little bit of background. It's desperate times in this moment in history. It's desperate politically for the people of Israel. The Romans are there, they're occupying their land, they're heavily taxed, they don't like it. It's desperate religiously. We'll see today that we talked last week, the religious leaders are corrupt using the temple system for their own financial gain and they're also hypocrites. We'll see that today very prominently, but more than all of that, and even as you think of what's going on in our, our world today, when there's desperate times, both sort of politically and religiously, oftentimes people's hearts end up in desperate places as well. And I think if you wanted to look and see what was most desperate about this time is, was the condition of people's hearts. They were desperate for something else because here's what was happening. Nothing else in their world was providing what they were looking for. And so they were desperate to find something that mattered. And that had purpose and meaning. And this is where John comes along. And I'll just summarize. Then we'll read it. I'll show it to you. But John's whole message could be defined this way. If you just want what John the Baptist is going to say in one word, his message was this. Repent. Repent. That, that's sort of the whole summary. You'll see he says a lot more than that. But he doesn't say any less than that. And what repentance means is turn. Turn 180 degrees. You're going one way and turn and go the other way. And in specifically for John, and this is really the message of all the prophets of the Bible, turn from your sin, turn from the direction you're going in and turn the other way and move back towards God. That is John the Baptist's overall message. And this is the message really of every true voice of God. The message of repentance. And this is the good news of that message, that when we repent, God forgives sins. He always has, and he always will. 
This is the message of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's the message of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1.15 and says, Behold, the kingdom of God is here. The king is here. He says, Repent and believe the good news. And you can see Peter preach that first sermon in Acts 2. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is John's message, repentance. So if I just wanted to hone our question for this morning, then even further, and you'll see this on the screen, here's what the question would be. Why was John's message of repentance so appealing? Why was John's message of repentance? Why him saying to large crowds of people in harsh condemning tones, you're going in the wrong direction, turn and go the other way, turn from your sin and go to God. Why is that so appealing? And so what I have this morning is, as we work through this passage, three reasons that I think true repentance is indeed so appealing to our hearts. So the first idea, and you'll see it on the screen, true repentance means the forgiveness of sin. True repentance means the forgiveness of sin. So if you have your Bibles or if you've got them open now to Mark, or sorry, Luke chapter 3, just look down to verse 3. We did this verse last week. But uh, here's what it says in Luke 3, 3. He went, meaning John, into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, so there it is. What's John's message? Repentance. Repentance. And what's the result of that? Forgiveness of sins. Now, look down to verse 7. Let me read 7 through 9. And there's a lot of different things in here. I'll just read it all together and then go back and comment on it. Here's then, if that was John's message, here's specifically what he said. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, if you just look to verse 8 there, again, we get this repentance idea, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John's message is repent and your sins will be forgiven and demonstrate that by getting baptized. So what John was saying is not come out and get wet in the water, let me dunk you, and then your sins will be forgiven. He was saying, no, in your heart, see the depth of your sin and repent of that and turn from that and as a demonstration of your repentance, of your turning, be baptized. It was an outward expression, as we say, of the internal desire, the internal change to repent. And so what we're seeing here for John, certainly for Jesus and throughout the Bible, is that repentance and following Jesus go together. Those who are Christians are those who have repented. They, they are one and they, they go together. You cannot separate them. And so this morning, if you wanted to do a little self-diagnostic on your own heart to say, what, am I a follower of Christ? One thing to ask yourself would be this. Do you have a repentant spirit? Do you have a repentant spirit? And if you would say, you know, I'm sort of, I like my sin. I'm comfortable in my sin. I don't really have this spirit of repentance where I feel the weight of my sin, then it's possible, then it's altogether possible that you may not be a child of God. What I'm not talking about as I say that is not that you didn't sin this week. We all sinned this week. It's not that some of you didn't lose the battle egregiously to sin this week. 
But the repentant spirit, not having a repentant spirit, says, I don't even desire to change. I just want to keep going in my sin. I don't have any desire to repent. And so when John is preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, he's saying repentance is a sign of our salvation. It's absolutely necessary for spiritual health. And so then why then, if that's what John is presenting, if that's his message, when he says there, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, why is that so attractive? Why is that so appealing? It's because what we've already said, repentance leads to forgiveness. We don't earn our forgiveness, but yet when we genuinely turn from our sin, God does something, he forgives it. And John is this genuine voice of God. He's speaking for God himself, as God has said throughout the scriptures. And I think John is appealing to the very hearts and consciences of people. He's speaking to their souls. They knew they had done wrong. They knew they were sinners. And he tells them the truth about themselves. You need to turn from your sin. And I think when someone tells us the truth about ourselves, but yet gives us hope that our sin could be forgiven, we are irresistibly attracted to them. We're drawn into that. I was remembering a time, this is uh, quite a long time ago, but I won't use age as an excuse for my poor behavior, sinful behavior, and I won't tell you all the details because it makes me even look worse than what, what I want to. Uh, but I was in a camp environment and did something not too much sinful, probably some, but certainly inappropriate, certainly embarrassing, and I did something that I should not have done, and that was bad enough. And then, because I was feeling embarrassed and humiliated, I tried to cover it up by lying about it, by blaming someone else, even sort of making up a half-truth about someone else. You know how that goes, right? You do one thing wrong, and then you just do another thing, and then it just keeps compounding. I was going down that road fairly well. And for any of you who have been in a camp environment, you know, if this happens in another environment, everyone just calls home. But in camp, everyone's all connected. Everyone's talking. So it was, oh, it was all the hub, all because of me. And then I had a friend named Paul, and he came, and I remember where I was sitting in this little hut. He came down, and then he laid out all that had happened. He said, Jeff, you did this, and you were humiliated. Then you did this, and then you did this sin, and then you did this sin. And he laid it out so perfectly. There wasn't even one thing he said that wasn't right that I could argue about. You know, if there had been one little thing off, I could have chosen that one and said, oh, but you got that wrong, you know, to avoid. He just got it all right. And as he laid that out in front of me, we were sitting there. Let me tell you this. I hated him. Just hated him. Could have got him in my seat and hit him, right? Because he just saw it for all that it was, right? It just, it was in my heart. Oh, just, you know, but let me also say this. I respected him and God gave grace in that moment, more grace than I deserved, to just confess my sin. Just to say, you know, yeah, you're right. I was wrong and here's what I have done. And in that moment, still remembered, it was many years ago, sort of felt the weight of sin lift off of me. Felt his forgiveness, now still had all the mess that I had created, but left that meeting feeling much lighter. I'm glad that God gave me the grace that I didn't just keep denying my sin, but admitted of it, repented of it, confessed it, and felt the great weight of God's forgiveness lift off of me. That's what John was proclaiming. He was saying, repent of your sin and God will forgive. 
God forgives the sins of those who repent. And people in John's day longed for that news, longed to have that weight lifted off of them. And so they came out to the wilderness and listened to John speak of their sin and turned to God and felt his forgiveness. So that's the first reason. It was so appealing what John was doing, the message of true repentance, because it means the forgiveness of sins. Here's the second reason, and then I'll show it to you in the verses. True repentance means the freedom from a works-based righteousness. True repentance means a freedom from a works-based righteousness. Let me just show you in these verses. There's so much we could talk about here, but I'll go quickly. John said to the crowds, verse 7, we'll go back over what I read earlier, Coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? This is where you just love John, right? You snakes, you rebellious people. Why are you coming out here? You know, and people are coming. And he's probably saying this mostly at the religious leaders. Uh, and here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. You know, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What, what he sort of means is this. Who told you that if you just get wet, God's not going to judge you? You think coming out here, getting this baptism that I'm offering you, is gonna, you're going to escape from God's judgment. It's not true. It's not an outward act. You need to have true repentance in your heart. And then if you look down to verse 9, he sort of carries it on. He says the axe is already at the tree, the axe of God's judgment. And he says every tree that does not produce true fruit of repentance is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. John, John starts saying, don't think that you're not going to face the judgment of God, both as individuals and he's talking here as a nation. God is ready to judge you and us. That's his message. Now, then here's what happens next. You can almost sort of see people thinking this way. Okay, so, so we, uh, you know, we, we get wet and that's not going to work. You know, God's not going to forgive our sins. We really have to repent. But then they were saying this, God's not going to judge me because I'm a child of Abraham. You know, Abraham's my father, so I'm safe. I'm safe, right? I, I don't need to worry about truly repenting because of my heritage. And then look at what John says. I think it's verse eight. He sort of addresses that head on. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So John the Baptist is saying it doesn't matter what your heritage is. In fact, look at these stones over here. If God wanted to supernaturally create his children out of these stones, he could do that in a moment. So don't think your heritage is anything special. So you see what's happening here? John is coming and he's saying to people, you need to repent. And for some, it's really good news. But for others... They're pushing back on it. And they're saying, but look at my externals. Hey, I'll get baptized and that will solve everything. Look at my externals. I'm, I'm a good person. Look at me. I'm, look at my heritage, my background, all that I've grown up in. And you can sort of see our arguments would be a little bit different today, but much the same, right? Our pride sort of wells up. Our self-righteousness wells up. Someone tells us we have to repent. And we're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to repent. And that's exactly what's happening here. Think of it uh, in these terms. Uh, maybe some of you were uh, the smartest kid in your class. You know, and, and if you were, then let me tell you this. Some of us didn't like you. So, but, but that's okay, right? right? But, and if you were the smartest person in your class, and you were like the best athlete and really popular, here, here's what you know. Here's what you know. You had to be really careful about that, right? 
You had to be really careful because you know that when you're sort of the best in everything, sometimes people don't like you. You have to be humble. And if you start to elevate yourself and say, look how good I am, people really don't like you. Now, why is that? Why don't we like the smartest kid in the class? Because here's what it, we sort of feel. Here's what we feel, like you're too perfect and I could never live up to the standard. We get a little resentful. It's really our issue. It's not their issue. Unless you're proud, that is your issue. But generally speaking, right, generally speaking, we see someone that's up at that standard and we feel a little intimidated. You know, we feel a little bit insecure. And so rather than look inside, we just sort of blame the other person, right? We don't want to be showcased. Now, think now we go back into Jesus's time and the smartest kids in the class are all these religious leaders. And they're coming out there saying, look at me. I follow all the rules perfectly. I get them all. And here's what these religious leaders had done. They had created all sorts of more rules out of the Old Testament that were, that were almost impossible to keep unless you tried to do it full time. Right? The average person, there's no way they could keep all of these rules. Jesus said these religious leaders have put an unbearable burden on the people. And then the other thing Jesus said is, these religious leaders, you're keeping all the outside rules, but in your heart, you're far from me. And so they're saying, look at us, we're so good. That's why they're pushing back. But imagine everyone else in the crowd. Imagine everyone else in the crowd. They're like, we could never keep this standard. We can never work. And here's what the religious leaders were telling us. If you can't keep this standard, you're under the judgment of God. God's going to judge you. And now John the Baptist comes along and he says, it's not about the externals. It's about the heart condition. And if you repent, God will forgive you and also he will make you righteous in Christ. You don't need to keep working to get all of your righteousness. God just makes you righteous. When you repent, when you turn to him, it's not about what you can do. And so just for a moment, you see then the good news of this. You see how it's a freedom from this works-based righteousness. For, for the religious leaders, they're terribly insulted. They're pushing back heavily as they did against Jesus. But for so many other people, this was freedom. This was freedom. You mean I don't have to keep all of these rules? In fact, what the message of the Bible would say is there's no way you can keep all the rules. There's no way you can keep all of the law. But when you humble yourself and recognize that and turn from your sin and turn to Christ, he makes you righteous. He just gives you his righteousness. And so we stand before God righteous. Why? Only from a gift from God. For some of you this morning, this is so important. This is just so important to hear. Because maybe you grew up in a home or in a church where you felt you could never meet the standard. Right? You grew up in a home or church where everyone else was the smartest kid in class and you were not the one. And you resented them and you thought, I can never keep the standard. And maybe, maybe it was more you or maybe it was them. Again, every situation would be a little bit different. But you just felt, I'm just going to give up on this because I never can meet the standard. Well, the good news today is that if you would just repent, true repentance means that God sees that and he forgives us. And he gives us his righteousness. You can meet the standard today, not on your own account, but on the account of Christ. So that's what, and that drew people out to hear this message, to be freed of all the weight that was being put upon them. So 
You've got true repentance leads to the forgiveness of sin. True repentance frees us from having to work to be righteous for ourselves and realizing we never can do it. And then there's a a third thing, and you may think today, as you're processing these first two, you know what this is going to lead to? This is going to lead to people going off and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Right? Your sin is forgiven. You're righteous in Christ. Well, let's go out and just sin some more. That's what you could think, but it doesn't happen that way. When you grasp the depth of what Christ has done for us, it goes the other way. We want to live for him, and this is what happens next. Look down there to verse 10. The crowd comes along. Everyone wants to live differently, right? They've heard this message. It's appealing to them, and now you see what's working in their heart. Verse 10, the crowd says, what should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. John's basic advice is this. Hey, you got some extra? Share it. Got an extra clothing? Share it with someone that doesn't have any. You've got extra food? Share that with others. Just sort of simple things of caring for their neighbors, caring for basic needs. Stop living for yourself, but be generous towards other people. Let me just make this little aside. It sort of fits here, but not... Totally, but I so appreciated Chrissy and Cheryl and the whole Fam Jam team that gave that update and announcement in both our Fam Jam and what we do here with summer camps. And in some ways, this fits right in here. You think, as a church, why do we do those things? Well, we've just simply seen a need in our community. It's not maybe the need of clothing or food, that's why it doesn't quite fit. It's just the need that families need something to do on Family Day. And part of what I think Christ is raising up in our hearts as a church is let's just be good. Let's just be generous to our community. And I love seeing those pictures. You know, that it's a good thing that families had a good day together on family day. That's good for families. That's good for our city and good for our province and good for our country. And that's our heart as a church, that we would just be generous, seeing needs and meeting those needs as part of this community. So the crowd says, how do we change? And then tax collectors come next. Look how Luke writes this. He says, even the tax collectors, like they were convicted about their sin. And, you know, it's sort of implying and they were really sinful. But tax collectors came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, they asked, what should we do? And then John says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So the Jewish people hated the taxation system put on them by the Romans, all sorts of taxes. But these ones were probably the worst, these tax collectors, because they were indirect taxes. So if you were a businessman and had to travel from city to city, you had all these little tax booths you had to go through. Just imagine, you know, sometimes you're driving on the highway in the United States and you, you just went through one toll booth and then you're like, I got another one here. I can still see the last one in my rear view mirror. That's sort of what it was like here. Except everyone, you'd have to stop and negotiate a price. And they could charge whatever they wanted because they had the Roman army standing there backing them up. And so the Jewish people hated it. And so these tax collectors now are being convicted of their sin, their greed. And John the Baptist doesn't say give up your profession. He doesn't become a political revolutionary and attack the right for Romans to levy taxes. He just says conduct yourselves honorably honorably and fairly. Don't take advantage of your authority. Live differently. Don't take bribes and kickbacks and all those other things. And then the last group that comes, the soldiers. Then some soldiers asked him, verse 14, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So these are probably Jewish soldiers rather than Roman soldiers. And as you can see there, what they were doing was, because they had low pay, 
They were trying to supplement their income by extorting money from people. Or they also would accuse people falsely. You know, hey, it's this charge against you, but you can get out from the charge if you pay a little kickback. And so John is saying to them, stop doing that. Instead, just be content with the pay that you get. Be content what you have. I love John's answers. They're just simple and practical. Just go back into your everyday world where you're living and just live differently. Just show that you are sorry for your sin of greed or of extortion or of bribery, whatever it was. Just go back because you are forgiven and live differently in those environments. Now, Again, this is radical though. It's simple, but yet he's going, he's telling people, you're going to have less because you're going to give it away. You're going to see a drop in income because of your repentance. There's great sacrifice here. So don't think these things are, are light. They are practical, but they are significant. And if you think for a moment, then Jesus comes along and Jesus says all of this plus more. Jesus says it's not only about what we do, it's about the condition of our hearts, completely surrendering everything to him. So that's John's message. Here's what, it, here's what it means. True repentance brings the capacity to live differently. True repentance brings the capacity to live differently. This is why this, I think, John was so popular. Why was this message so appealing? Because people of his day, as in our day, I believe, want to live beyond themselves. We don't just want to live for our greed and for our needs. We don't just want to live for what we want. We want to live rightly. We want to live with integrity and generosity. In some ways, you could say it this way. Living right is a reward in and of itself. Proverbs 21, 21 says it this way. Whoever pursues righteousness and love... What do they find? Find life and prosperity and honor. And I think what makes this appealing is that people do want to live right. And so they were looking in saying, now that my sin is forgiven, now that I'm righteous in Christ, out of that standing, now I can live differently. It gives me the motivation and the heart to live differently. And this word capacity, John's talking about that now. But, but here's, again, here's what we'll see next week. He's not just saying go home and work really hard at it. He says something next week that's profoundly helpful where we actually find the capacity to live differently. Where he, that is actually provided in the Christian story, the capacity to actually live the way we want to live. It starts with repentance, and then John will explain more next week in that regard. So that's why I think John's message of true repentance is so appealing. These three reasons. One is we feel the weight of our sin, and even though we hate it when we get called out, we know that God forgives. And then secondly, I think his message is so appealing because we know we can't keep all the rules. We know we can't follow. And then when we hear that we can be righteous in Christ and can just rest in that, there's great appeal. And then the third reason is that we all do want to live differently. And it's out of the foundation of those two, having a new relationship with God that we both have the capacity and the motivation to live differently. So back to the hiring committee. I still don't think he gets the job, right? It's just not that popular today. But again, whether John gets the job or not at our hypothetical church, 
probably the more important question is just where do we stand? And I said this morning, I just wanted to try to make a case for why John's message was appealing. For some of you here this morning, you may look in at what I've presented and you may have questions. You may need me to clarify something. I could have been unclear or you may have pushback. And if you're in that category, I'd love to talk more. I'd love to talk more. Thank you for allowing me to talk and thank you for listening. And I'd love to return the favor and hear your heart on what I have said and ultimately on what the message of Jesus or John the Baptist is. For others of you today, you may realize that you've never truly repented. You've been in church all your life. You've done all sorts of religious things, but you've never truly felt the weight of your sin and turned from it. You've never felt that way. And so this morning, wouldn't, could I invite you to do that now? In your heart, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And others of you today, you know that you've never repented. This is new news, but this is good news that God offers sin to be forgiven, that he can make you righteous in Christ. And if that message has been appealing to you today, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you, then just say in the quietness of your heart, oh Jesus, I accept what you offer. I repent of my sin. I turn from it and I trust in Christ. Forgive my sin, make me righteous in Christ and fill me with the capacity to live differently.